how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. John Fusco needs no introduction. Known for lonesome westerners and wandering swordsmen, his credits include Young Guns, Young Guns 2, Thunderheart, The Babe, Spirit, Hidalgo, The Forbidden Kingdom, The Crouching Tiger sequel, Marco Polo, and now the new Kevin Costner, Woody Harrelson movie, The Highwayman. His latest film comes from director John Lee Hancock and has been in the works for about 16 years. In fact, the screenplay was originally meant to be a vehicle to complete the third film starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. The Highwayman uncovers the untold story of a pair of police officers who were brought out of retirement to catch the outlaws Bonnie and Clyde. In this exclusive conversation, we discuss priceless lessons from Fusco's mentors Waldo Salt, who wrote Midnight Cowboy, and Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote M.A.S.H. Similarities between westerns and kung fu films, how he made a movie for Jackie Chan and Jet Li, his conversations with Redford and Newman, and the importance of virtuous characters in cinema. You know, it's, it's something that I wanted to do from a very early age, believe it or not. Um, around 10, 11 years old, um, I, was just, I fell in love with movies and movie storytelling, and um, I started... Uh, we had this wonderful medium of Super 8 filmmaking back then, um, and I would uh, I would write and uh, shoot my own little shorts, directing kids in the neighborhood, and it was something that I wanted to do for the you know um, all through childhood up and actually into my teens, which at a certain point, having grown up in a kind of blue collar environment that wasn't real encouraging of the arts. I didn't know where to uh, where to go or what to do with it, and I kind of pivoted into songwriting and music, and even dropped out of high school and was on the road from the time I was 17 till 21, and and then somewhere somewhere there out there on the road, I just I realized that I had given up on on a dream that was the closest thing to my heart, and I was going to go back for it. And so I kind of picked up the pieces and went back to night school, got a GED, and somehow got myself into NYU film school. I read that uh, you, you kind of lucked out with some of your uh, mentors or influences there, like Waldo Salt. What were some of the you know, first things you learned that helped you kind of shape your style? Well, you know, Waldo, that, that, was, that was a real uh, uh, godsend for me. Waldo took an interest in me because of the background I just described to you. And, you know, I remember him saying that he was reading too many scripts in film school that were, were about other movies. And he felt that my stuff reflected a lived life and, and real characters. And so he encouraged me to stay 
true to that and told me I was on the right right beam and to, to build on that and to always, you know, go back to that well. Um, he also, you know, Waldo, he was, you know, like a, uh, he was a, a real champion um, of the screenwriter's craft. And, he, you know, he was one of those writers who didn't want to be a director. It was, it was about the proud craft of screenwriting. And he instilled in me the idea that uh, the writer is king. And, you know, at least, you know, your first draft, you get in there, you know, the music you hear, um, how you, you just, you take the reins because this is, you're making your movie in this draft. Um, you know, uh, uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who was also a mentor, um, he really encouraged me in, in, the, in the world of discipline, disciplined writing and really developing my writer's toolbox. Um, and to, to never be lazy and to to look at the screenplay as a, like a novelist would look at a novel, to make it a reading experience, to really cast the spell for the reader. So I, I was very fortunate to have, have those, you know, Hollywood blacklisted veterans um, as, my, as my mentors. Do you give similar advice now that you're, you've got all these films under your belt? Like, do you, you know, most people, young writers, they hear, write what you know, but they're so young, they have no real experience. You tell them to kind of get out there and experience the world to shape their work. You know, I do. One of the things I say to them is, is don't, you know, don't be discouraged or baffled by this, this notion of, you know, you can you can only write about what you you know about. I mean that is true, but the thing is that doesn't mean it's limited to what you know right now at this point. If you have some deep passion, you know about uh, you know pre-Columbian tribal life, and you've always wanted to do something there, become the expert in it. You know, get out in the field, go there, know it, um, and and take it to the point where you're you're when that movie gets made, you're the best technical advisor on the subject. But um, you don't have to be limited to the region you grew up in, um, you know, or your, your, your scope of experience. You can go out and go after it and follow those passions. What do you kind of see? So you're, you're known for a lot of um, Westerns or Western-type films, but also Eastern, like Kung Fu. Um, do you kind of see some similarities in those where it's kind of a man-goes-on-a-journey-type stories? How do you define the scope of the bulk of your work? Well, you know... Um, I, there's the temptation to you know, say Americana in a lot of ways that's true, but, but I've been long fascinated by this cycle of influence um, between Kurosawa and John Ford. And, you know, you know, John Ford and Kurosawa and Kurosawa and Leone and, and this, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the monomyth um, and the, the, the mythos of the, the wandering hero, whether it's the, the, um, lone western character or the the wandering swordsman and the kind of the similarities between wuja literature and and americana and those types of heroes and those types of societies and themes there's a real real uh, thread that runs through it and i've been been super fascinated by that um i also feel that my interest in native american material kind of connected into that too. So, you know, I love historical, cultural material, and also I've, I've long been drawn to um, kind of digging underneath the myth and the legend to find, find the history and explore why, why it gave birth to such legends.
And you mentioned, um, you know, kind of your inspiration was, you know, story is king. You're in there. You're not really thinking about what comes next in terms of directing and that kind of thing. Did some of that change between, let's say, Young Guns and the Forbidden Kingdom? I know the marketing push for Forbidden Kingdom when it came out was, you know, Jackie Chan meets Jet Li for the first time kind of thing. Did you write that script with them in mind or was it still about the character first? Um, it was it was about the character for sure, and um, but you know I never never like to to cast when I'm writing. But um, soon after, you know, once once the script was written, you kind of sit back and look at it, and it's it's kind of like what you know currently now with the, with the Highwaymen when when uh, after it was written, I suggested Redford and Newman. Um, after in the same producer, same you know after I I wrote Forbidden Kingdom, I suggested. Jet Li and Jackie Chan, and knowing that they had never worked before, and also feeling that because it was the story of of a kid who kind of goes into his his kung fu uh, dream world, that these guys would have been his heroes, um, and so that you know that's how that happened. Did you have to? Um, this may just be action on the page. Did you have to change anything afterwards? I know at the time, in my opinion, I was a big Jackie Chan fan. It seemed like um, his was more realism fights, where Jet Li was more almost like moving to the style of wires and, and special effects. Did you kind of change the action to, to form for their, you know, something some kind of balance between the two? Um, you know, I think. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I'm a lifelong martial artist, and um, I write my fight scenes in in great detail, especially when it comes to classical kung fu. Um, and so that that was a big part of the appeal for me. I, I I really I wanted I wanted those characters to have styles that informed their their character. Um, and Wu Ping, you know, the the legendary martial arts master and choreographer, the the man who created the crouching tiger aesthetic, um, the choreographer and. Um, it was very nerve-wracking for me when I first sat with him and he turned pages and went through. And I remember his interp interpreter looked up and said, Master says, uh, usually writers just put down, now they fight. And he said, you, you know, you're, you're writing out these fights in great detail, and my stunt guys say they've been seeing you at the stunt tent doing old-style Shaolin. And I was very nervous. And I said, you know, look, that's just on the page. He said, no, 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 I like it. I like it. I, I, I'm not used to that. And it gives me something to really build on. And, and so he became like a, a mentor in the world of, of martial arts choreography. Um, but to answer your question, I think he was so familiar with, with his styles of Jet and Jackie that, that he knew how to work with that and, and how to to use their styles to capture the characters I wrote. But, but I think you're right in, in, the, in the two different approaches to the action. What else can you elaborate with, with fight scenes, let's say with Kung Fu or with the shootout? Um, so I spoke with uh, Miles Miller and Alfred Goh, and they write Jackie's uh, Shanghai Noon uh, series, which may become a trilogy soon. One of their main thing was that every fight has to push the story forward. Do you have any other advice like that about writing a fight? Well, I think that it should should not only push the story forward, but but uh, inform character. You know, and I think that it, it, we should you should reveal elements of character through through action scenes and fights. Um, the it should you know never be just a gratuitous action scene or fight scene for the sake of it. 
and that's you know martial arts, gunfights, um, having worked with Wu Ping, um, I, when I went on to do Marco Polo, uh, I chore uh, I, we had a martial arts choreographer, but uh, you know I worked closely with him and and wrote the action into the screenplay, and then we would go and do previs and shoot previs. So we were always always shaping it, but at the you know you can you can kind of get dazzled by the action and say so you know this is going to be the coolest fight scene ever, but if it's not if it's not moving the story forward like you say or it's not revealing character um, or theme, you know then it, it's you know it's just eye candy. So let's move to your your newest film, Highwaymen. Um, you mentioned that you originally wrote this with the possibility of Newman and Redford in mind. So. When did you first start writing this story, and, and how long did it take to get it to where it is today in production and, and ready to come out? I, I st started writing it 16 years ago, and um, after the, the first draft was, was ready, um, and I spoke to the producer and suggested Redford and Newman, and he kind of laughed and said, you know, that's... It's actually a cool idea, but we'll never get them. We'll never get them, but let's try it. Let's start there. And they, they both went for it. They, I mean, Redford got it and said, don't even send this to Paul. I'm going to personally hand deliver it. I'm going to fly to Connecticut and give it to him because I'm not going to let him out of this. We're, this has got to be our, our capper, our number three. Um, and so we were heading down that road where I worked with, with – uh, Redford and Newman independently for like three, four months. And then Paul got sick, unfortunately and sadly. And, you know, once once the town was buzzing with Redford and Newman, it's, it was like, where do you go from there? So the, the project sat dormant for a while. Although John Lee Hancock, um, he was on it early too. He came on around the time Redford and Newman. And he stayed on it over these years, pushing it, driving it. And, um, uh, so it was it was a long haul, and but in the meantime, you know, Kevin and Woody got older, as happens, and they got a kind of patina on them, and they're actually closer to the actual ages of the historical characters. And you know, in hindsight, I think Redford and Newman would have become the event rather than being the untold side of the Bonnie and Clyde story. Um, and and they are just they kill it. But you know, it's um, for me, it, it's been worth the wait. That's for sure. Did the script change uh, like drastically between those? You know, in the last sixteen years, or just a little bit to maybe uh, update? No. Just the same? No, just yeah, just a little bit here and there. You know, John Lee, he's a, a, a gifted screenwriter. Um, and he was very respectful of my work, but, you know, he, over the years, um, you know, as he was shepherding it and still trying to get it going and thinking about it, he would do some tweaking here and there just to strengthen, to reinforce themes and character, things like that. But no, and it really uh, hasn't changed all that much from the first draft. Let's talk a little bit about how you set up a time period. So in the beginning of this film, um, I wrote a, uh, a story a little bit like this. I'm kind of familiar with the, some of the research, but you make sure to include uh, Babe Ruth got this um, new contract and what it, what it means to be rich, how much money, 35000 You introduced the VA, the Tommy gun. How do you kind of, you're, you're not only showing the setting that they're in, but you're also comparing 
these are the older generation of that setting. Like, how do, what kind of do you have a checklist you go through to, to introduce a story like this? You know, no, it's actually when I when I write historical material, which is pretty much most of what I do. The process for me is to research it so deeply, um, and to research it to the point where I feel like I'm overflowing with details of the period and his historical uh, details, so that when I sit down to write, it's sort of there. Um, it's definitely like no no checklist of okay, let's make sure that <clears throat> it would be great to, uh, you know, yes. Are, are there times where you know? Uh, for instance, the case is, you know, uh, <clears throat> after one of the Bonnie and Clyde shadow uh, moments where we just get a glimpse of them holding up a car, we cut to Frank Hamer and Gladys in the uh, downpour in the rain, and they're listening to the radio. Um, you know, I had a pretty good idea about what kind of radio shows were on then and there, but I actually looked, I said, okay, so here we are, here's the date we're looking at, this is February 1934, and so I'll, I'll check out what was really on the radio in February of 1934, and then I'll, I'll find the program. I, I sat and, you know, spent half a day listening to George Burns and Crazy, <laughs> and um, I love that stuff. I love to, I was just having lunch with John Lee, and we were talking about it, and I call it casting a spell. And I think that's what this movie really does. It's a you know, real credit to John, too, that, uh, that you, you, you take your time, you let the story breathe in that setting, in that time and place, so that the viewer is kind of drawn into the reality of it and feels like they're, they're, they're in the real deal. They're in that time and place. Uh, language, language is another thing. You know, um, when you, you – I, I, I just – completed work on a colonial era period, like 1736 southeastern United States, and I, I read so many diaries of English and French traders that I was using their vernacular at the dinner table, and my wife's like, what the hell did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I really do, I, you know, I, take, I do take a bit of a method approach to my work, and, and I like to um, I like the, the whole time that I'm, I'm researching and writing, I really stay in that zone. Um, and so uh, language detail, getting that, getting that right, but also making it accessible. Sometimes you even find that there's period dialogue that just feels it's, it was actually accurate but feels like an anachronism. And you know that it'll, it'll, it'll land like an anachronism but was actually authentic. Um, you have to go through and, and make those decisions, but but I just I, I love I love all that detail and you know the way we did the Great Depression, we didn't make it any kind of polemic or anything. It's it's there and it's real, but you know you you study those migrant camps and if you're doing the proper research, and you're reading about 1934 Texas, you you know you want to know what was going on in those areas. What were the migrant camps like and um, yeah, like that. When you're writing something like this, that's that's based on a true story, do you do you kind of plot it out to where you're going to hit those certain plot points you know have to happen, and then 
and then spend a lot more time on dialogue or how do you kind of approach something like this? Yeah, I, I, what I like to do is I, you know, I call my historical signposts. So I, I know what the big historical incidents you know, are going to be or should be once, once I find that framework. And in something like this, you know, you study it long enough, you study the history and you look at it and you say, okay, really, where did Hamer come in? When did they finally go and recruit, recruit him? Well, it was right after the Eastham prison farm when Bonnie and Clyde didn't break out but broke into a prison, killed a guard. That was the sort of the catalyst before they went to Hamer. So we know that's, that's one of our big historical signposts to start. And as you go through, you have your different incidents like, you know, the grapevine killing or what, you know, and you kind of just, you lay out those big beats, but I like to leave myself breathing room in between and to explore, to explore character and to get into the fictionalized, the, the fictional glue that'll hold those things together, that'll speak to theme. And then, you know, braiding in, you know, a little, little incident. You know, like, you know, someone asked me last night, they said that Havelina, that pet Havelina that Hamer has, it draws a big laugh. It comes, you know, running out. At least Simmons, like a guard dog, and runs into the house. You know, that is a little bit. That's historical detail that I got from Frank Jr. And um, I, I love. I mean, could have lived without that. But you look at it and say, you know what? That's just. And, and the person said to me last night. They said, you see something like that, and you know, a writer didn't make that up. You just, you don't. Make it. Yeah. That had to be something real, and it gives it this nice texture. Yeah, I was thinking that if this weren't a, weren't based on a true story, I wouldn't believe something like that. But because it is, it, yeah, it must be true. How do you do you do the same approach with? Let's say uh, there's a lot of conversations in the movie where there's some broader theme. Like there's, I'll just kind of be generic here. There's talks about like nature versus nurture with what made the the uh, Bunny and Clyde go bad. Outlaws always go home. Uh, just talk about right and wrong. Do you, you know, do you have a big picture idea in mind, or do you kind of let the characters just just talk and then see where it goes? How do you view that for scenes? That's a really good question. You know, um, I think that the really when it when it comes down to it, that this story, you know, about these these two two Texas Rangers. You know, it's not it's not uh, some high concept, you know, Hollywood thing about you know, old time cowboys entering the gangster era. There's this this deeper haunting, elegiac theme. You know, these these guys know that they're they're heading to do something. There's going to be blood at the end of this, and that it's only going to end one way. And that they they were man hunters from another time. Um, but they've got to go and do the hard thing. And there's the, the, the moral dilemma. So, yeah, I mean, I think it starts with that theme and, and knowing that, you know, that's the really fascinating stuff. I think at, at the heart of it, that's really what fascinated John Lee. And so then it's, yeah, it's, it's once you have that theme established, and with the char Woody Harrelson's character, Manny, he's, he's really the conscience, you know. He, he's the moral conscience, and then you... you you look at their background, their past history, the stuff that happened with them down in the, the border territories when they were rangers and, um, you know, the whole Mano Cerebus story. So, yes, I think in, in that case, there's, there's a, this overarching theme that, that's going to inform the dialogue along the way. 
So you kind of you mentioned um, well, just with the transit when this went away from uh, Redford and Newman. When did Costner possibly start showing some interest in Harrelson? When did they kind of start to to be interested in this film? Well, I think that because of John Lee's long relationship with with Kevin, and because of the fact that he, like Joel McRae once said, was one of the very few contemporary actors who could pull off the Western character. Um, we went to him pretty soon after, and he felt he was too young for the role at that time. Um, and so it took so long that we, when we circled back to him, he remembered it and felt like, hey, you know what? It's still there. You're, it's, you know, now I, feel, now I feel I could do it. Do you, uh, not to like, you know, generalize or anything like that, but do you, do you think that, like I grew up on Westerns and Kevin Costner, and it feels like there's less of these movies about men being made today. Um, do you think uh, he, Woody and, Her- and, and Kevin may have viewed this as like really connected with these characters, especially Costner, where he used to make these types of movies and there's less and less of them today? Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, Kevin, he, he really gets it, you know, I think in the way that he, he nailed Elliot Ness, you know, and, and, and Wyatt Earp. Um, and it's, I think when I was saying Joel McRae said he was one of the guys who captured the, the Western, you know, McRae said that Kevin's, you know, uh, part Gary Cooper, a little uh, Clark Gable and a little Jimmy Cagney. And, you know, the, the laconic, man of few words, you know, who's, who feels that, you know, um, kind of, you know, uh, adhering to the law in an almost inflexible way and just believing, you know, it's right down the middle with right and wrong. Kevin just does that so well. And we talked about that. And I think Kevin's straight down the middle approach to acting lined up beautifully with the kind of character that Frank Hamer was. And, um, Yes, Kevin and I, you know, Kevin is, God knows, he loves the Western as much as I do. Um, and we both, we both uh, kind of lament, you know, that, that these kind of movies aren't made anymore. I mean, he was just talking last night about how he, he's got one. He's got a big Western that he's, it's been his, his love, his passion, he wants to get going. Um, I'm always trying to, to get these done. I'm always drawing to them. I'm always drawn to them. So, uh, um I just think that, and I think it's it's that Netflix has you know, given us this opportunity to do this type of story. So we mentioned some of those uh, conversations, like nature and nurture, and things like that. Are there other um, kind of in the respect of that last question? Are there other virtues or character traits that you want to kind of put in there as a message to people about you know possibly what it means to be a man and, and things that are important like that in, in your stories? You know, it's, I mean, I think that it's it's all all inherent, all in, in, inherent in that that type of character. And I, I mean, with you know, with Hamer, um, I think that when you look at uh, look at Clyde Clyde Barrow um, and Bonnie, you know, they if they couldn't be famous, they were going to be notorious. And and one of the reasons was is that Clyde, who wanted to be a musician and and, and reportedly was a pretty good saxophone player. He didn't want to put in the hard work. He didn't like, like labor, and he, he even chopped off one of his own toes at Eastern Prison Farm to get transferred uh, out of the, the chain gang because he didn't like the labor. Hamer, on the other hand, you know, was, was a, a, a hardworking, honest, honest man. 
And, um, you know, I think that he really embodies the, the spirit of, of, uh, of the country. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's that type of character that's really appealing and really needed right now. I, I think, you know, young men need to, to look more at that type of thing. That's really interesting. I, I love the part when they're just, they find their clothes and they just kind of comment that they're, look how small they are, you know, like this, they're almost yeah. like kids out there on this, on this vigilante or whatever spree. Um, do you have any, just kind of anything else you want to say about the film or any, any last minute advice for uh, writers who want to enter the screenwriting world today? Well, I think that the last thing I would say about the film is that, you know, um, the, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you end up feeling badly for everyone at the end of this film, you know, um, Hamer and Galt, this was, this was not, it's not a glorification of, of violence in any way. And, and we set out to, to do, do the opposite because Bonnie and Clyde and that story, you know, criminality was kind of glorified as a, as a response to to a, a reigned in world, you know, in, in the 1967 film. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the road, you know, everybody's wounded, and uh, and, and that's that's the powerful thing about it. I think advice that I would give is that look, this this script took me 16 years to get made, and you know, it's. Willing a project into existence is so important, and that you know just because you've had a, a, a script or a piece of writing sitting there for a few years, you know doesn't mean it, it didn't fly, it didn't work. It just you have to look at it like your real estate portfolio. You know, it's it's money in the bank, and and keep giving it attention. I, you know, I've got a whiteboard on my desk with my passion projects written down in a list. I look at that every day. And I look at each project and say, what am I doing for that to keep the chains moving? And you just have to, you know, just work hard, keep believing, and, um, and will those projects into existence. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.